1: Back to season six of Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host Anthony. This week, my guest is Michaela Hunter. Michaela is an expert on medievalism and medieval history. She's especially interested in how disguise and perception play into gender roles. And so I thought she'd be the perfect person to bring on to talk about Arya. After that interview, This episode gets witch-heavy. I talk a lot about Melisandre with Steve, and then I include in my bird's-eye view an excerpt of my conversation with Brian Pavlak, who is an expert on witch hunts and mass hysteria. Without further ado, here is Dr. Michaela Hunter. Michaela, I've got a question, and you're not prepared for it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. All right. I have lots of different kinds of academics on this podcast. So when I bring on, like, the professors of gender studies or the professors of English literature or the religious studies professors or the psychology professors, they all treat this book like candy. Like, ooh, I get to take a break from my day job and just do something that's totally fun. But when I bring on medievalists like yourself – It feels a little bit like work. Is that how you feel about this?
2: It is. It's fun, but it is work. It's (laughs) Because my specialty is both looking at literature in the medieval era, but also medievalism. It's how does the modern era treat the medieval era and how do they adapt it for a modern audience? So it is... It is more work.
1: I think. It is more work, and so I appreciate I appreciate all the more that you would take a little bit of time just to do a little bit more work for the benefit of of this audience. I appreciate it. Happy to. All right. So I, here's something that I did not know about you. I did not know that you've done a lot of work on the King Arthur story, and. Specifically related to disguise. Could you just talk a little bit more about that? Because, of course, we're going to jump into Arya, and Arya is going to become something of a master of disguise eventually.
2: Yes. Uh, so my doctoral thesis was all about disguise and false perception and the ability to perceive false appearances in mm. what was essentially medieval pop literature. <laughs> It okay. was romances, uh, which is not the Harlequin Mills and Boone romance <laughs> that we think of today. Okay. Romances back then were adventure stories, mm-hmm. and I was looking at Arthurian legend and a few others that we don't really think of today, Bevis of Hampton stories like that, and how how people disguise themselves, why they disguise themselves. Mm. Who can see the truth and who can't? And it's particularly interesting, I think, in Arthurian literature that King Arthur and kings in general can't see through disguises. Or if they do, they are the last person in the room to figure (laughs) it out. And it's usually women who are the first to uncover a disguise.
1: Uh Why is not Tell me why that. Why is that? Because I'm not, I'm not expecting to find sort of a proto-feminist in some of these medieval writers. So why is it the woman that has this ability?
2: It was a lot to do with how medieval audiences thought women's versus men's memories worked.
1: Oh, interesting.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I wrote... A whole article about this. I'll try and do the distilled version. They thought that women were better at remembering uh, relationships between people and faces. Hmm. And women were, were tasked with remembering genealogical information so that when it came to a marriage or even court depositions, any sort of legal matter, they were usually the ones called forth as witnesses to say, how are these people related? Hmm. Uh, When were they born? And whereas men were used as witnesses or in other legal issues for other memory things, when did this event occur, that sort of thing. Um, And that ended up bleeding into the literature of the time. And we can also look to Biblical precedent where women were the ones present at Christ's resurrection and they were the first Mm -hmm. to see him risen. And I think that that also played a factor in how a largely Christian audience uh, was writing about women's roles in literature in the medieval era.
1: That's fascinating fascinating. You probably don't know this about me, but I did my dissertation related to social memory theory. So it's more like how groups remember, which is usually a male-dominated affair. But um, a lot of the stories from below, like family histories, would seem to overlap with some of what you're talking about. So yeah, no, I absolutely want to see this article that you've written. And I'm fascinated with the article that you are writing. And I think the title of that is the Keeper of Memories, is that right?
2: Uh, the title of the book is Keeper of Our Memories. Keeper of Our Memories. Okay. Yes, I have a chapter in it called The Citadel and the Ivory Tower.
1: Wonderful. And I... y- and the editors of these of this book are
2: Caroline Larrington and yes. Anna Charnois.
1: Wonderful. Caroline's certainly a, pr- a friend of this podcast. So I want to jump into this chapter, and I just... It's hard to even know where to begin, so I'm just going to go ahead and read the synopsis that I wrote, and we can just start talking about it. Arya and Cyril Pharrell are training with wooden weapons. He is teaching her what it means to truly see, not to see what one expects, but to see what is actually there. After he shares a story about a tomcat... The two are interrupted by several Lannister men, including Mir and Trant. Trant demands that Arya come. He tells her that her father has sent for her. Both Serio and Arya see through this guise, and the fighting begins. Serio bests four guards with only a wooden sword. Then Trant, who is more heavily armored, cuts the weapon in two, and Arya runs. In hiding, she sees that several of her father's men have been slaughtered. She witnesses the death of Hollen. She retrieves needle from her belongings that have been packed in the stables. When a stable boy confronts her, vowing to take her to the queen, Arya impales him, and the boy dies. She resolves to find the passage beyond the dragon skulls beneath the castle. This, she thinks, is the only way out of King's Landing. So, Michaela Hunter, would you like to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos.
2: Well, it's tempting <laughs> as the ladder of chaos sounds. I am dying to talk about the themes of false and true perception. Yes. And blindness and sight. That's my jam. So, let's do it. Let's Fantastic.
1: Do it. <laughs> yeah, so do you want to start with do you want to start with Mir and Trant? Do you want to start with uh, the story about the cat? Do you want to start with sort of Arya's larger narrative arc. What do you ha, tell me what you want to talk about?
2: Let's let's talk about Arya and her larger narrative arc. Yes, all right. Because I feel like this chapter in particular really sets the stage for her character arc throughout the whole series. Because it's dealing with that question of what do you really see yeah. and what's really there? And Arya's whole skill set is throughout this series is changing identities and hiding who she is.
1: Yeah, and then in the reverse, like, so you're right. So she is sort of manipulating what other people see about her, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, part of her her survival technique is to truly see what is there. Definitely. Even in this chapter, to look around and see, like what is truly happening, you know, who here is a friend, who here is a foe, assessing the situation around here to survive. So I guess it goes both ways. In one sense, she's an expert on scene. Conversely, being an expert on scene means that you can kind of manipulate the scene of other people.
2: Absolutely. And not only is it essential to her survival, I think it's essential to the survival of a lot of the Stark family. Hmm. It's Ned, John, Sansa, they all have moments where because they can see what isn't there, or rather, because they can see what's truly there, they survive. Or in Ned's case, because he can't see what's truly there, he dies. So it's very much a survival issue for more than one character. (laughs)
1: I want to hear you unpack this a little bit, but um, I feel like she has this in common with John. I think John has good eyes. Like he can see what's what's happening. He sees what he needs to do to survive. He can kind of intuit <laughs> uh, Catelyn's not-so-subtle slights, right?
2: Well, even in the, in the very first chapter, well, yeah. not the prologue, but Bran's chapter, uh-huh. when they get their dire wolf pups
1: absolutely chapter one
2: yes yes right? and john's pup is the only one with its eyes open
1: huh. that's right but only one that- with the eyes open he's the one that can find the pup he sees the value in the pups he sees his own place in the family and i think Arya has that same kind of gift but i guess i wonder like I don't know if Ned has this gift. I don't know if I don't know if Rob or Sansa has this gift. I mean, I think that Sansa certainly develops it later. Yes, but I certainly think that Arya and John have something that the others don't.
2: Yes, I mean John can also see that it's not Queen Cilise who pulls the strings. Right, it's Melisandre, and all of I think the quote is all of the troops were hers in all but name.
1: Yes, command. that's something right. I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. But
2: on the other hand, the other refrain for Jon Snow is, you know, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there's a balance there of what he sees and yeah. what he thinks he's yeah. aware of, but doesn't. For yeah. Ned, uh, for Ned, it's, it's again, um, a balance because Peter Baelish straight up tells him don't trust me, don't trust anything you see here. Yeah. And he goes ahead and trusts it. And that's right. his, to his detriment and downfall. Well,
1: and the placement of this chapter is, is, is important because I think that this chapter happens directly after the climax of the book. And what is the climax of the book? It's that Ned's whole plan fails miserably. You know, the page before we, we are introduced to Arya training with Sirio, you know, Ned has a knife to his throat and Baelish is saying, hey, I told you not to trust me. <laughs> so we have this contrast between Ned who could not see through Baelish's schemes and Arya who pretty can pretty quickly, you know, she needs a little bit of help from Serio. But she can indeed see what's going on around her. And figure out what it will take to survive in that situation.
2: Yes, I mean Ned does also see what Jon Aaron sees that no one else does. Mm. That Cer- Cersei's children don't look anything like right. their yeah. purported father. Mm-hmm. So yes. that that scene she gets him. him in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I guess yeah. seeing seeing the truth doesn't necessarily guarantee survival.
1: Sure. Um, I guess you're right about that.
2: It it um, certainly shakes things up.
1: Right. Okay. Let's talk more about disguises. So Mm -hmm. Arya is, you know, she's going to become uh, something of a faceless acolyte, right? And she encounters a faceless man, and she thinks, "Well, that's that's the life for me. I want to I want to do that. That's going to help me get my revenge." You know, maybe there's some sort of attraction to the country where Syrio comes from, maybe. But she's going to, at some point, eventually master a sort of a a complete identity shift. Or at least she's going to trick other people into thinking that she's undergone a complete identity shift. Is that the kind of thing that interests you in terms of disguise? Or is that something different?
2: Identity shifts and disguise are a bit different. They're both interesting. They are a bit different because when you're shift, I guess it depends on how we're defining shifting identity. If you're truly changing who you are, that's not a disguise. But if you're, if Mm. we're talking about Arya's ability to completely take on a new body. Right. uh, As she does with the knowledge she gains from the faceless men. Right. That's still a disguise because she knows who she is and who she's projecting is something she wants other people to believe temporarily, mm. but then she can take that disguise off again. She can take that identity off and shed it like a skin.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, famously she under, she has, well, I don't know, six different names in this book Yes. or in this series. And I, I mean, to me, that's, Maybe there's a Venn diagram between identity and disguise. I don't know if her identity is fully formed uh, in the same way that that a lot of just well-written characters are not fully formed. In a sense, we all kind of use disguise to project an identity.
2: I think that when she's up to the point where the books have have left off yeah as she's taking on new personas she is trying out different identities and she doesn't fully know who she is i think that's that's quite symbolized in in putting needle away and hiding it right and then taking it out again um when she leaves the house of black and white in the film or in the the
1: show show. yeah yeah that's right
2: Uh, but she hasn't gotten to that point in the books
1: yeah but it's crucial that to me it's crucial that you know she's supposed to become no one right and i guess this is sort of a parallel to several religions where sort of you eschew ego or you eschew there's some sort of ascetic bit to the house of black and white and she is able to do that but the one thing that she can't throwaway is needle, needle she hides. And I think that that is some symbolism there to I- indicate that she is a Stark and she will remain a Stark even if she's trying to convince these faceless men that she's not Arya Stark anymore. She knows she's hiding Needle and she knows eventually she's going to go she's going to go be Arya Stark again.
2: And that idea of Needle symbolizing her essential starkness, yeah, uh, is present in this chapter when fear takes over and the only thing she can remember is what John told her, mm. stick them with the pointy end. <laughs> yes. It's when she is stripped down to nothing, mm-hmm. that kernel remains.
1: Yeah, I'm going to read this uh, one little, sp- this little part here. Everything Cyril Farrell had ever taught her vanished in a heartbeat. In that instant of sudden terror, the only lesson Arya could remember was the one Jon Snow had given her, the very first. She struck him with the pointy end, driving the blade upward with a wild hysterical strength. Needle went through the leather jerkin, and the white flesh of his belly came out between his shoulder blades. The boy dropped the pitchfork and made a soft noise something between a gasp and a sigh his hands closed around the blade oh gods he moaned and his under tunic began to redden take it out (laughs) when (laughs) when she took it out he died it's (laughs) it's brutal it's absolutely brutal but you're right though she forgot every you know she's trying to memorize everything that Sirius ever taught her but in the heat of the moment, the only thing that comes to mind is that first lesson from Jon Snow.
2: Yes, and I think that when Arya finds herself cornered, she ends up retreating to her Stark family origins rather than giving it up to the new identities she's trying on. Hmm. It's, it all it retreats back to stick them with the pointy ends. <laughs>
1: Well, and of course, the sword is given to her by her brother, or who she thinks is her brother. The sword is was forged at Winterfell. Um, and at one point, Serio Pharrell actually says, you know, boy, girl, it doesn't matter, you're a sword. And so in the same way that sort of the sword she carries was forged at Winterfell, Arya was forged at, at Winterfell to a large part.
2: Absolutely. And in medieval romances, in medieval adventure tales, swords are a, an extension of a knight's identity. Huh. They they take on sort of pseudo uh, human characteristics at times. Sometimes they can even turn against their wielders if they're not being they feel they're not being used appropriately. <laughs> uh, so I think having needle there as As you said, um, both an object forged in Winterfell and an extension of Arya's identity as a person forged in Winterfell Mm. is very apt, particularly for a medievalist work.
1: Absolutely. And it's a named sword and it's a sword that reminds her of her family. It reminds her of Jon Snow. Like it is. It, it, It represents her relationship to Winterfell. So I think you're right, to return to her when her Stark identity is sort of wrapped up in her relationship to this sword. I want to juxtapose Arya and this guy Desmond, who she witnesses his corpse. Earlier in the book, so Arya has not seen but heard a conversation between two men. And she tries to tell Ned that he's in danger. And, of course, Ned can't actually see what's going on. And then she asks this fellow Desmond, like, like, how many men are guarding my dad? And, you know, do you think he's really in danger? And Desmond says to her, like, she he brushes her off, too. And he says, you know what? Don't worry about your dad. One Winterfell loyalist is worth ten of these southern swords or whatever. And I thought it was interesting to bring him back into this chapter because even if it's just his corpse, because clearly he couldn't see the danger that Ned was in. And so what does Arya do? She comes across his corpse and she sees that he's dead. And there's one red cloaked person dead next to him. And what does she say? She says, you liar. And she kicks his corpse. Clearly here's someone who was not able to see the the danger of the situation. So as opposed to Arya who is able to see what danger her father's in, here's this guy that's assigned to protect her father and he couldn't see that. And she it's just contemptible to her that he would like buy into the sort of northern propaganda and have that blind him of the true situation.
2: Certainly. And I think if we look around to other houses The number of people who can consistently see the truth and not buy into their own propaganda Mm. are very few. Tywin Lannister can, but certainly not his daughter. (laughs) Sure, that's right. (laughs) He's also very astute at reading. Situations for what they are and not buying into all of the Lannister propaganda that he helps perpetrate because it helps him. But he doesn't make the mistake that uh, Cersei or even Jamie do.
1: I really liked that part of the show because in the books, you know, Arya and Tywin are not, don't have that intersection. But I thought that that was such a brilliant move of the show to put those two together. Because I think it's crucial for Arya's character that she takes on these teachers over time, right? So she, John is a teacher. To a certain extent, her father is a teacher. And Cyril Forello, of course, is her first sort of most robust teacher. The Hound becomes one of Arya's teachers. But I thought it was interesting to, to put her in the room with Tywin. Just for that very reason. Because... He's got talents that so few people actually have in this story.
2: Certainly. I mean, Tywin can tell that Arya is a girl straight off the bat.
1: Yeah. So do you... Let me ask you this question. Are you a cat person? Are you a dog person? (laughs) What kind of... I
2: own both. I adore both.
1: Okay, good. So you refuse to be typecast. There was a lot of... (laughs) My father
2: was a veterinarian (laughs) loving a variety of animals. with that
1: okay there's a lot of there's sort of a repeated cat theme that goes on in this chapter so i was i was hoping that maybe as someone who has been around animals your entire life if you had seen some interesting things to talk about regarding the cats and the cat themes
2: cats you can take a number of ways uh they are creatures of the night they are known for being able to sneak up on things uh they also have an ability to land on their feet and i think that aria demonstrates both of those abilities she can travel fairly unnoticed even in a crowd Mm -hmm. and she does land on her feet even after she's been thrown proverbially on her head <laughs> um, yes. s- stabbed whatever. Uh, I think also that cats you could take it as cats are sort of her mother coming yeah. through certainly <laughs> yeah. cat of the canals. sure yeah uh, plays on both that idea of cat stark mm-hmm. and her taking on her mother's name. At the same time as Cat of the Canal's being a sneaky feline persona.
1: And they're also hunters.
2: And they're Uh, hunters.
1: Yeah, and and Arya is going to become something of a huntress, I suppose. Um, And they
2: look very fluffy. And they have sharp claws.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so Sirio... It's interesting. This is an interesting book difference. Sirio is trying to teach Arya about the value of being able to truly see. And so he tells her this story about how he became the first sword a bravos, And he, he basically says, you know, this King had brought in this, lots of fancy animals from across the sea and he was interviewing people. And there was a cat on this guy's lap. And because he was known for bringing in all kinds of crazy looking animals that no one's ever seen before, he would ask a potential, uh, you know, guardsman, you know, what do you think about this cat? And I guess to a man, all of them would say like, oh, he's he's amazing. This is amazing. I've never seen a cat like this before. Such size, such small ears or whatever. And Syria is the first one that can go in and basically say that's a street cat. I've seen a dozen of those just today. Uh, the ears are small because they've been scratched off. And this cat is just fat because it ate too much. So, Ciri is able to kind of... See, oh, and also, Ciri is able to, like, properly identify the gender of the cat. Clearly, this is a tomcat, even though the Lord was calling the cat a she. And so, the cat is sort of a test in Arya's life in a number of ways. The, the cat was certainly a, a test for Serial or Pharrell, but then Ciri or Pharrell gives Arya a lot of cat-like tests. You know, do you have balance? Can you catch a cat? Can you see as well as uh, as well as I saw the cat? And so eventually what ends up happening is a little bit later in the chapter. She it says explicitly that Arya has become the cat. Uh, She used to like try to uh, run through these halls of King's Landing trying to catch the cat. But now people are trying to catch her. So now she's the cat. And I thought that was a nice bit of thematic development, but also foreshadowing to the later books.
2: Yes, a, a change from hunter to prey. Um, yes. Certainly. And also another aspect to the Arya as cat metaphor is that cats are solo hunters. Right. Whereas, and, and she has, the Starks are associated with the pack. canines yeah, and the, the pack. And she, right, she, sure. she the lone wolf dies and the pack survives. Uh-huh. She doesn't, she can no longer have a pack to fall back on. She can no longer participate in any sort of Mm -hmm. pack hunting or pack mentality or Hmm. uh, pack method of survival. She has to take on feline hunting qualities (laughs) and become a solo hunter.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's fantastic. A few other uh, differences between the book and the show. The story about the cat, of course. Uh, in the book, Sirio's bald. That's not that important. Sirio in the show's head of hair is so magnificent that I think it's noteworthy. <laughs> um, what do we say to the god of death? Not today. Not in the books. There's tons of things that Sirio has taught Arya. I'm going to read just a little bit of this paragraph because it really does sort of give you the, all of these lessons that Serio has taught her over, I don't know, the course of months? Weeks? I'm not sure. All that Serio Pharrell had taught her went racing through her head, swift as a deer, quiet as a shadow. Fear cuts deeper than swords, quick as a snake, calm and still as water. Fear cuts deeper than swords, strong as a bear, fierce as a wolverine. And it goes on and on and on. And it's supposed to be something of an exhaustive list of all the things that that she's memorized from Serial Pharrell. But never mentioned is that famous refrain from the show, what do we say to the god of death? So that is an absolutely a show-only detail. Yes. Not that it's necessarily bad. It's just that it, the theme of scene is so important for Arya, and the show doesn't nearly capture that about this chapter. Famous introductions in this chapter, not a lot of... Important introduction, although we do hear about striped horses, great spotted beasts with long necks, hairy mouse pigs as big as cows. But Kayla, you're a medievalist. What is a hairy mouse pig as big as a cow?
2: I think that's a rodent of unusual size. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: thank you. Thank you.
2: He's setting. Martin is setting up the idea of the wonders of the East. Yeah. And okay. Good. Preparing much like the medieval Mandeville's travels, talking mm-hmm. about strange, fictitious creatures who live beyond Western Europe, um, who who have faces on their chests and are blue skinned and mm-hmm. are you know, hybrid animals. Yes. Which uh, clearly didn't exist, uh, but it's it's fantasy in, in, in yes. Game of Thrones. It's fantasy, and it's Martin's world, and he can do what he wants. <laughs>
1: right. So, speaking of hybrids, um, tigers that carry their cubs in pouches. So the the question is: Are these the kinds of things that would be in a medieval bestiary, or are these rumors of things? And of course, there's overlaps, uh, certainly between those two categories.
2: Yes, uh, medieval bestiaries would often have real animals, but then attribute actions to them that they wouldn't actually do. Sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, what is it? The s- s- swan, stork, some some bird who who I'm blanking on right now will reportedly in a bestiary peck out its own heart to feed it to its sure. young. And yeah, right beavers who cut off their own tails and things like that.
1: Yeah. And dragons that lay in wait to capture elephants along the path. Clearly. Right. <laughs> clearly one of those animals is real and one is not. So no, I, I thought that that was a great little sort of stained glass window in this chapter. That oh, certainly.
2: Of- and, and while tigers that have kangaroo pouches, aren't specifically medieval. Martin's just playing with the form mm. um so setting up this idea of the wonders of the east where Arya can uh run to and learn all of their techniques and then steal them and come back and bring them back to Westeros.
1: Right. Famous departures in this chapter are uh Holin. She comes upon Holand and she thinks he's dead. He's alive long enough to call her Arya Underfoot one more time and to say, warn your father, which, hey, Holland, I think it's too late for that. But um, then he dies. And she, of course, she comes across Desmond and kicks his dead corpse. The departures of the stable boy, who she is her first kill. And uh, then I have a question mark. Departure of serial Pharrell? Unknown. But at least in this book, this is the last we see of him.
2: Certainly, the problem with an off scene death in <laughs> <Yes>. a series <laughs> yes, <laughs> known indeed. for twists and turns.
1: <laughs> I want to talk about Arya as a as a killer. So this sort of fits a little bit with the cat theme, right? This is Arya's first kill, and you know it, the sense here is that it's done in self defense. It's done in
2: self-defense and it's done in panic.
1: And it's, uh, yes, it's, I'm so glad you say that. Tell me everything there is to know about that. (laughs) Say everything that you need to say.
2: Uh, Well, I think this death seems uh, more palatable perhaps to the audience because it's done in self-defense and it's done in sheer panic. And the idea of, When you are truly afraid, you are not in control of yourself Mm. and you might act in a way that you wouldn't normally uh, is central to this chapter where it's fear cuts deeper than swords. The idea Mm. that fear is your loss of control Mm -hmm. or leads to your loss of control and that for a swordsman is deathly dangerous uh, mm-hmm. but then later when she uh, is is helping her friends escape from heron and sh- they are trying to get past the guards she just straight out kills one of the guards in and says and and everyone she's with turns to her in horror and she says to them quite coldly well what did you expect me to do Yeah, And that, to me, marks a huge shift between this chapter and Arya's future kills because that one was done deliberately with no fear.
1: Hmm. Yes, and yet, here I am. I was totally affected by this. I love Arya. I'm realizing, like, this first book, she only has, like, five chapters in the whole book. And this is, like... The one of the climactic moments in the entire book. She's been playing at swords the entire book. She's been going off to this dancing master. She's been learning sword play this whole time. And I've been completely fine with it. (laughs) I've been like, yeah, you're practicing. It's so, so cool. I love Cereal Pharrell. Teach her everything you know, Cereal. And I love that she's getting better. I love the way that she's internalizing the kinds of things that Sirius is teaching her. And in reality, what's happening is that he's teaching her to become a killer. And so when this happens, I feel like she kind of turns to me on the page and said, well, what did you expect, you dummy? Like, this is exactly what I've been training for.
2: We aren't fencing for points.
1: Yes. <laughs> We're yes. We're to
2: wield a weapon with purpose.
1: Yes, and it's one of those things where it's like of course you were playing swords the whole time, but I w- I certainly wasn't ready for this. Um and I think it's, you know, it's probably my a very modern perception of childhood which d- existed quite differently in in earlier times or whatever. But I'm just saying as a character in the book, I've come to love Arya and, and this just seems so tragic for me, especially on the reread, because I know that later on she's going to be co- become so cold-blooded later in the series.
2: <laughs> I think that this chapter does, as you point to, mark a shift toward adulthood for Arya, because it's that change between game games and practice to real violence and mm, mm-hmm. most games in the medieval era, not, not backgammon or something like that, but, but <laughs> a lot of games were built around teaching children, adult, uh, adult moves, adult qualities, um, sure. adult abilities. Right. So you have a lot of games that are preparation for war. Uh, yeah. And and today we, <laughs> we see yeah games as as representative of childhood innocence, but but a lot of them are built around even even today's kids playing house that is preparation. They are preparing f- yeah. for adulthood. They might not think of it that way, but that's what they're doing. And yeah. so for this chapter arya's is learning swordsmanship and because it's wooden swords and because it's in a very controlled safe setting, it's a game and we're rooting for her to do really well right. those we're are her, her dancing lessons yes it's her and and they're even phrasing it as, those are her dancing <laughs> yeah. lessons and uh-huh. needlework in, sure. in very um, safe couch terms. And then we see the shift to, no, now you have to apply it to the real world. And that is a shift Mm -hmm. into adulthood.
1: Yeah. And so we do
2: feel sorry for her and sad for her because that, that age of, of innocence is gone and Mm -hmm. ripped away in one very short afternoon.
1: (laughs) That's right. Or morning,
2: perhaps I don't recall, but one very short, one very short day. (laughs) That's right. Or even scene.
1: I was thinking, uh, as I was reading this chapter, I was—I had this image in my mind of like Arya's cocoon, like she had sort of this cocoon of, you know, Jon Snow and Ned Stark and Cereal Pharrell, and in this chapter, it's like all of those pieces of the husk just fall away. You know, we we know that Ned is now not in control anymore. And uh, we think that maybe Sirio dies off screen. And even though the, the sword is sort of representative of John, John is way out of reach. She does. She she becomes something else. She transforms in this chapter. Uh, you know, it could be a transition from childhood to adulthood. It could be a transition from sort of play to martial prowess or something like that. But we're witnessing a real life transformation of a really important character in this chapter.
2: Uh, absolutely. It's, I think it's a really, of, of all the chapters Arya has in this book, I think this one's perhaps the most representative of her story arc to come. Yeah. One thing I'd like to draw a parallel between is this chapter and Arya's final chapter in the book series in this chapter her eyes are opened she goes from someone who does not see that her fighting her swords master is holding back on her Hmm. that Hmm. everyone is not there to in in good faith that the lannister guards have malicious intentions Hmm. uh and that Swordsmanship is is a very real world hard consequences hobby, <laughs> not sure. a game. Um, her eyes are opened in this chapter, and then in the last chapter we have of Arya, her eyes are quite literally closed. She right. She has goes to complete blindness for her transgressions. And, and she uh, has
1: to learn to see in a different way, right?
2: And she has to learn to see in a different way. So like Bran, she is opening a different sort of eye.
1: That's right. And and the eyes that she sees in the books, not in the show, but she sees through the eyes of a cat. Yes. Which is just a wonderful I, you know, who knows how much of this Martin had in mind when he was writing this first novel, but boy, he certainly pays this chapter off in those later Aria chapters.
2: Absolutely. I, and I do love it when an author can set up the kernels of something quite early on and you don't notice it's there at first. Mm. And then when you come to a later chapter or even a later book, suddenly you think, oh, Oh, that's what that was pointing toward. I love that.
1: You know what? I just thought of something. I try this on for size. So she she chases Nymeria off, right? So she she's a wolf, and Ned says she has the wolf's blood or whatever. She's a Stark, of course. And she has this dire wolf that she, in, she has to chase off. And at the same time that she's trying to sort of become a cat... Uh, across the Narrow Sea, she is also having these wolf dreams at night. And I wonder if that's sort of like that latent starkness or that sort of underlying starkness, like she's trying to be a cat, but deep down, she's a wolf. What do you think?
2: Oh, absolutely. Certainly. Uh, she's her when the cats start appearing as a theme for uh-huh. Arya. It's when she starts stepping farther and farther away from her uh, hitherto for identity um, as a Stark. And so she is forced to go solo and that that isn't comfortable. And that's something that she isn't really supposed to mm-hmm. large air quotes around that word <laughs> be doing. And so yeah. she does, she part of her journey in the books hopefully and in the TV show certainly was to learn what she can as a cat. <laughs> yes.
1: Um so to
2: speak. And yeah. and then return to the pack. Her her ultimate story arc was to return to her family, return to Winterfell. Yeah. And Become part of that pack again and fight as a pack against whatever forces they sure. face, whether that be Peter Baelish's final attempt at manipulation or the uh, Whites Beyond the Wall. Yes, she sails off at the very, very end to see what's west of Westeros, but you, you get the sense that even though she's sailing off this time, she's still going to continue being part of that pack. Yeah. And so this. Yeah, that's right. Cat There's a wolf head on the sails, right? Yes. So this cat interim is a part and parcel with throwing off her name, Arya Stark, and becoming mm-hmm. a series of other people for sure. survival purposes.
1: And now Steve and I cover the Red Woman. This is the first episode of Season 6. Sansa and Theon are on the run. Sansa and Brienne are united. We have the Jorah and Daria roadshow in the desert. And then, of course, we have the reveal that Mel has glamoured herself to disguise her true age. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, is it generally desirable to be naked or... Is nakedness generally undesirable?
3: Hmm. Uh, you mean as somebody who is nude, or or watching or seeing somebody nude?
1: I guess the question is: the state of nakedness is it usually desirable or undesirable?
3: Usually, well, that's a that's a great question. It's all
1: contextual. I knew you were going to uh, say that. I guess I'm looking for a percentage. <laughs> Okay.
3: Um, Well, (laughs) uh, I would say probably 98% of the time that you are naked at school, it's undesirable.
1: All right. I mean, I guess you could be in a Van Halen video or something. Sure. That'd be the 2%. (laughs) Uh, I was going to say, yeah, I think 90% of nakedness, like anywhere undesirable Hmm, okay like i think the kind of nakedness that cameras point at gives you a skewed perspective of of the general state of nakedness around the world Hmm, okay i think if you're sort of a general practitioner in general your job is not great (laughs) right sure
3: sure i guess that that (laughs)
1: Yeah, in general Probably, usually, nakedness is not something that, that you want You want for yourself, you want for other people The conditions have to be just so for that to be a good thing Right,
3: yeah, yeah, no, I guess you're right I mean, I'm. are you uh, Are you somebody who likes getting naked when there's
1: no one around? <laughs> nope, I feel like old Melisandre staring in a mirror mm, Yeah, yeah, that's the problem
3: uh, not good. Not good. No, not good. It's funny because like when that happened, it's like first off, she she starts just robing, and and Heather's like, oh, well, it's just here we go again. I mean, man, we got
1: yeah. How many times have it, we seen that same?
3: Yeah, <laughs> like and it's always like, and she's <laughs> it's always being done in such a way that's like like sultry and provocative, but it just means nothing anymore. <laughs> so then uh, you know. Then she takes the necklace off and you go, oh, well, I guess if that's your other option, <laughs> I'd be pretty excited to get naked yeah. more often, if you I were guess.
1: If you were 400 years old <laughs> and you could glamour yourself into that body.
3: Yeah. Now it's like, oh, OK, you're not you're just, <laughs> you're not necessarily seductive. You're just riding this thing out for as long as it'll last.
1: <laughs> now was I think that, that was that scene was meant to have like some shock value yeah At, i think so. i think when i first watched that scene and i did not see it coming there's nothing in the books that suggests that this is going to happen so i was first watching this scene i think my father was visiting <laughs> <laughs> And usually I was not watching Game of Thrones with my father, but in this case, that's, that's I, I was, and uh, it was it, w- it was a bit awkward.
3: Then he's like, "So is this how they all end?" Yeah, like, yeah this is kind of this is like the sit ubu sit uh, part <laughs> of Game of Thrones.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah <laughs> did you all right i mean there's a lot of ways you could have taken that you could have found that to be kind of funny or you could have been grossed out by it or it could have been like oh that makes sense
3: yeah well there was there was a it was kind of a uh <laughs> careful how i say it. i liked it <laughs> i mean i liked what it was trying to do in
1: like a blanche golden girls kind of way
3: <laughs> like it was like a finally moment you know finally some nudity that that speaks to me
1: um. <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right when i saw that in the show for the first time because i mentioned like that's not really a reveal that happens in the books as of yet i thought oh well that's really fascinating now that now that there's a character who's 400 years old what could that do for the plot like is this person going to be able to tell us something we wouldn't know otherwise? Like, Mm. like there's some sort of secret Targaryen treaty that she was around for 300 years ago that we don't know about. Right. And so I was, I kept on waiting for that other shoe to drop. Like what is the point of her being an old lady? Right. And the show really never pays it off. Interesting. Going back and watching this episode and seeing it end in this way. I thought, well, what's the point? I mean, other than sort of the shock value of it, you kind of revealed this little tidbit about her and didn't pay it off
3: in the end. So it just sort of is a is a a moment.
1: I think the way I read it now is that you're supposed to think of her as someone who was uber confident before. And now she, is you know, her, her faith is as frail as she really is.
3: Right. And I think that there's something to be said for someone who's been around this long. And then this is the moment. Like right. she, if you look at it and say the, uh, the assumption being that she's been a believer, she's been a believer for, for good reason. Uh, yeah. And, and, and
1: presumably for a long time. And, yeah, and you don't generally change your ways at 400 years old. And
3: for something, and for an event to have happened that shook her to the point where what she thought was gonna, cause like, so we, we've talked about this, uh, I think the episode before, maybe that we were, we were talking about her visions and how you know when you're sometimes when you're religious and you encounter the supernatural, you interpret it a certain way. So she's had practice interpreting these. Yeah, is yeah. what it what one would assume with that uh, degree of or how old ever old she was, right? Like so, so she's probably got a pretty good track record. And so if this one didn't materialize, it either means that she maybe she got she was too much hubris or whatever the case, but or maybe something got interrupted. That she didn't anticipate um,
1: Well whatever happened She got this one wrong and this one is Shaking her faith and I think that The reason why she Looks in the mirror without the necklace on Is just kind of To remind herself You know what so much of me is just You know smoke and mirrors
3: Yeah I mean there's a Actually the more you go into it the more that There's to dissect like okay so she's She herself is maybe a, A misconstrued vision yeah yeah and and that and that becomes kind of an identifying moment
1: Mm -hmm. what do you want to talk about there's a lot to talk about i mean there's a
3: lot to talk about this this season kicks off man i mean it
1: It all this was this this first episode almost felt like a episode 10
3: yeah it just was just going went for it um which is interesting right so i mean we've talked about the perceptions of the seasons and six is considered to be a, a pretty, pretty good one. Um, yeah.
1: Off to a good start so far. Yeah. I I didn't, aside from the nakedness thing at the end that, that I sort of am trying to interpret to make sense. I felt like everything, either they're knocking down pins or they're setting up interesting pins to knock down. Mm-hmm. Um, Like for instance, like Roos, Bolton tells Ramsay that that the fact that Sansa and Theon have sort of slipped through his fingers is his fault. Right. In other words, he was he was squeezing them too tightly, and and then they mm-hmm. left. And if if he had just you know treated them as honored guests, maybe they wouldn't have <laughs> yeah. jumped to their almost certain death. Right. Instead of facing him. So there. And then he also says that if you can't find Sansa, then then he's no longer the heir i mean he kind of yeah. hints in that direction
3: yeah it feels like that's that's a he's been weaponizing this soon to be born mm-hmm. child if not overtly pretty you know it's it's out there yeah it's, so yeah so yeah so in a way there's a psych a bit of psychological torture that he does with ramsey which you know seems somewhat fitting.
1: which is interesting because it's like he's telling ramsey look the reason they left is cuz you tortured them and they they couldn't help but take the nuclear option Right. But then now he's squeezing Ramsay. Right. And uh, you know, Ramsey's not the kind of guy you want to squeeze.
3: No, he's not a squeezable.
1: Uh oh yeah. So then of course Brienne comes to the uh the rescue, right? It's a little bit of comfort for the Sansa
3: narrative for once.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that Brienne's probably what Sansa's always been lacking, right? Sansa always Someone that wasn't
3: isn't gonna make her life terrible. <laughs>
1: Like Sansa has been needing just someone to kind of look after her, yeah. And Brienne is sort of perfect for this job.
3: And oddly enough, she's always been looking for the potential king to to kind of sweep her off her feet, right? Like the mm. prince narrative. And so now she gets uh, a lady knight.
1: And when has she ever had any luck with men? I mean. <laughs> Yeah. It hasn't happened very often no. I mean, even, even Tyrion uh, Tyrion's a great guy, but you don't want to be forced to marry
3: <laughs> I still love that wedding speech that he makes Talks about throwing up on
1: uh... <laughs> Yeah uh, Alright, so <laughs> Speaking of Tyrion Tyrion and Varys are back together <laughs> Yeah, it's quite the little show <laughs> And uh, and I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, what Danny has been lacking this whole time is like a reliable spy network. Mm-hmm. Like she could have used someone like Varys the beginning of last season.
3: Right, right. Oh, no, for sure. Because then you would know about all the sons of the heart. Yeah,
1: exactly. And... So I, it's kind of low key that Varys shows up and just sort of like, yeah, Varys and Tyrion, kind of old hat. But you you get the. I'm kind of. Appreciating anew the idea that Varys is actually quite a weapon to have. And if Danny could ever find her way back to Marine, uh, she might actually. Hopefully, there's a
3: lot of episodes of her walking back. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so here's something that I don't get. Maybe you're going to help me with this. Rewatching this episode, Davos finds John's body bleeding out. Mm hmm. He gets the body, he brings the body into a room, and then he locks himself in the room with the body. Why? Like, why not take, if, the, if you want to keep the body, why not take the body somewhere else? Why not? Why lock? Why does it matter? Why? I don't know why he's locking himself in a room with the body. It, to, to me, that makes zero sense.
3: Yeah. Why does he want the body?
1: Why does he want the body? Why is he sort of, sort of trying to make common cause with Gren?
3: It's an yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a deliberate move.
1: It's not like I don't, I don't think ends. that it just here's yeah, exactly. I don't feel like Davis is in any danger in and of himself. It's all it's almost like he's he's pushing himself into this little corner that really he doesn't need to be in.
3: No. This but this leads to to Heather's uh and so we left the last time Heather had mentioned that we may not have seen the last of John. Sure. And I, yeah. And again, I'm I'm of the, are you just in denial? But then, you know, so now there's this scene and she's like, yeah, I don't think this guy's coming back to as an actor, just to lay on a slab. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Bald Move merch beats running around naked. And they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. We try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. But well, some people aren't the joining type, or maybe they're already in the club, but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage or for podcasts that really spoke to them or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love.
1: For this week's Bird's Eye View, I will include a short excerpt of my conversation with Professor Brian Pavlak. Brian is an expert on the 400 years of witch hunts in Europe and America. So I had to ask him about witches, but of course, where do you put a topic like that relative to this book? So I wasn't really sure where to put it, but I thought because Steve and I were covering an episode that features prominently a witch I thought maybe I'd include that here. Just a little warning on this conversation. We absolutely get political because we're comparing ancient hysterias and ancient accusations of cannibalism to modern hysteria and modern accusation of cannibalism. So if you're trying to avoid politics for your mental health, I totally get it. You can just end the podcast whenever you hear Brian say the word political, but stick around long enough to hear him talk about supernatural penis theft. That might be worth your while. Here is Professor Brian Pavlak. I was just watching your TED Talk on the ugly history of witch hunts. Yes. Tell me something about witches that I don't know.
4: Well, I don't know how much you do know, but the first thing I often say is there is no such thing as witches. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that even today, you know, people believe in uh-huh. witcha and wicca and whatever and all that. Uh-huh. But but when I say there's no such thing as witches, I especially mean as defined by the people who carried out the witch hunts.
1: Right. Someone who who worships Satan and gets yes. power from Satan.
4: Exactly. And and I don't think anybody does that. Uh um and if they do i just won't believe it but uh you know it's Uh a free country and people can believe whatever they want but there's no empirical evidence that any magical spell has ever worked okay and that that's what even back then and that's the second thing i often say is not everybody believed in witches during the witch hunts and there were people who stood up against it people who opposed Uh it people who disagreed so the witch hunts weren't everywhere and every time they were sporadic and popped up here and there and waxed and waned in all sorts of different places. So it's a period of about 400 years, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't constant and people were constantly terrorized. They came and went, but based on an idea that did not have any empirical validity.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you see a parallel between the satanic ritual scare of the 80s where people were kind of freaked out that kids were getting abducted. And-
4: absolutely. Again, I have a page, so my I have a whole witch hunt site from which uh-huh. that TED Ed is linked and such. And one page is ten myths about the witch hunts, and that's I think myth number nine. Um, but yes, absolutely. Though those that sex abuse scandal, which again had no empirical validity according to a thorough study by the FBI, too late to keep some people from being prosecuted and sent to prison.
1: Yeah. And too late for our parents to not freak out. it.
4: Yes. Them. Yes. So there, there's no empirical validity to any of that child abuse stuff. The kids made it up under pressure from inquisitors. And that's what often happened in the witch hunts. The witch the inquisitors would go saying, oh, did this happen? Did this happen? Did this happen? And people, for all sorts of reasons, said yes. Just like Uh today, people admit to crimes that they did not commit for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes they're convinced, sometimes they're bullied, sometimes they're literally crazy. So yes, that was a manifestation of the same sort of idea. Uh, Another popular thing you can look it up that has happened sporadically in the past few decades is penis stealing.
1: Yeah, okay, so (laughs) I I own a copy of The Hammer of Witches. Okay, yes. And Mm -hmm. so it's possible that let's say i don't like my own penis i could go climb a tree and and grab grab a new <laughs> penis off of the penis tree
4: well I don't, I don't know if you could reattach those penises that they did find <laughs> in trees but um and there's some lovely illustrations of those things that, you know there's these medieval drawings of that uh-huh. and, you know these these penis nests okay and um <laughs> and just you know in the past few years in different places uh groups of men began to think that witches were stealing their penises
1: Again, now Okay, so uh, clearly that was a it was a concern, mm-hmm. or, or what, around the fifteen hundreds mm-hmm. or something. And in the past
4: few decades, but again, people. And would so say, I
1: don't know about the last few decades, though. What was the what was uh, what was the issue in the last few decades? Okay, let me see if I could find the link. Um,
4: like particularly in Nigeria, there's a serious outbreak. Oh no! And. Uh, I don't have a link there that I can find easily, but uh, you can, you can Google it, you know, it's sociological studies. And um, men began to imagine that witches were stealing pieces. I think particularly in Nigeria.
1: Okay. Um, I might've seen, now that you mentioned that, I might've seen this.
4: And um, and when, of course, they'd be demonstrated, they could show their penises were still there. Uh, The the witch excuse is, you know, it's a spell called a glamor. Uh The glamour is a technical term for witch casting a spell that that makes people imagine
1: things that aren't there or are there and they can't see them. So, um, yeah, I can see this being a big problem because, yeah, yeah, because if your penis gets stolen by a witch, but the witch also can make a penis look like it's there when it's really not, yes, then how are you going to convince anyone of the veracity of your claim? And that's the problem with witchcraft
4: and magic or i would also say to be fair miracles uh-huh. there is no empirical proof that somebody asking for a miracle or a spell to happen uh-huh. there's a direct causal connection is it, you, know, you know miracles happen uh-huh. and, and evil things happen but there's no way to prove that i know of and nobody's come up with one and this is what theologians and philosophers argue during the witch hunts there's no causal, causal connection able to be made. I did find one link. It's, it's, now it has to be, it's now in the archive because it's off the web, but penis snatching on the rise in the Central African Republic in 2013. Uh, well, there you go. So there's one example that I managed to archive and link to. And um, it's happened several times. Or again, there's mass hysteria where, you know, there's a near Salem a few years ago, a bunch of girls got sick. And mm. we're having hysterical fits and people are connecting it to the same witch hunts, which is completely valid. Um, hysterical waves happen that people just get imagine right. these horrible things. And again, you can look at today's politics to get political. I don't know how much you want to go there, but QAnon.
1: I was just going to ask you about this. this
4: insanity, because, you know, that Robert yeah. Kennedy Jr. is going to come back and, or, Robert, yeah. or John F. Kennedy Jr. is going to come back and, and become trump's herald or something i don't know it's yeah just, people believe very strange things and right what happened with the witch hunts is they became institutionalized right the, the government authorities in different places not all of them not all the time but various government authorities say and that's my definition of witch hunt Is government authorities backed up the persecution of witches now there are witch panics where people get worried but panics don't usually do much damage because people don't have much power what game mm. of thrones is about but the government authorities that have power If they stand behind something, then the witch hunts happen.
1: Well, all right. So this makes me wonder, like, the basics of the QAnon uh, conspiracy have some parallels here in Mm -hmm. that, you know, if you really believe that there are Satan worshipping upper crust folks that are stealing humans and drinking their blood or whatever.
4: Yes, cannibalism and um, all that. This all part.
1: has an analog. This all has a historical analog, right?
4: Yeah, the the idea again that the pizza gate, right? That this guy yeah. thought Hillary Clinton in a pizza place was was attacking children. Uh-huh. uh and that's a common accusation against enemies throughout history. It was thrown against Christians and the Christians threw it against their enemies is cannibalism especially of babies. Yeah. Right. that's the worst possible thing people do, and they use it against their enemies. And like modern studies in New Guinea, where anthropologists think there is some cannibal or was until recently cannibalism going on, but the people would say is they met anthropologists is Oh, we don't do cannibalism, but our neighbors across the mountain do. Sure. They're the bad ones.
1: Yeah, 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 But
4: then it would turn out both of them have accusations of cannibalism thrown right. against them. So that's what you do, in a sense, too, to get political. And again, this is always the important role of government uh-huh. and Game of Thrones in power is the government ultimately decides, in some ways, our reality. And this well, is this, the danger of the witch hunts. They change the reality for the witch hunts. This is the danger of QAnon. They're trying to change the reality to believe in this QAnon
1: stuff, right? Right, the change of the reality is not that there's actually people drinking baby blood, the change of the reality is if they you can get a hundred thousand people to believe that, mm-hmm. then they will go to extreme measures just to, to try to stop it,
4: absolutely. Right? And again, the weird thing about QAnon is we don't know who the QAnon people are very well or very much for certain. We knew who the theologians and the philosophers and the government lawmakers were during the witch hunts. So we can identify how and why, maybe not why so much we can't read their minds, but we can identify through sources. These are where the ideas came from. That's another thing, one final point I often mention with witch hunts, you don't have to believe in witches to be a, a Christian or a Jew, because witchcraft is a, is a minor, insignificant, and very fragile concept in Christian theology, especially for all, most of its history, except between 1400 and 1800. Now, there are some Christians who worry about Satan and witches today. They exist. Yeah. Sarah Palin among them. But most Christians, they, the Roman Catholic Church, taught before 1400 and insisted again on after 1800 that witches do not exist. It's all an illusion. If somebody thinks they're a witch. They're either mentally ill or they're deceived by the devil. They have no power. Right. Because so, again, witches don't exist. Again, according to most modern Christian denominations. Right.
1: And then parallel to this, and you may tell tell me that it overlaps, but I was thinking parallel to this is sort of the old anti-Semitic accusation of blood libel.
4: Oh, yes, exactly. That's the same thing. As I said, the accusation of cannibalizing babies and such like that, that's, again, what Christians used against Jews as Romans had used against Christians. Right. And then they add, of course, the particularly ethnic issues of circumcision involved in some of that and of course one of the blood libels was stealing you know eucharistic hosts and stabbing them to get blood somehow but also babies and young children it's the exact same but just a different script right just condemn your enemies with something unbelievable and people believe it and historians have to go back and say no, none of this happened. Jews did not kidnap and murder young children and steal the Eucharist and stab them and create blood and blaspheme God. Yeah, historically
1: speaking, this did not happen. And yeah. now you're saying you're you're sort of trafficking in the same rumors again for the same effect, but you mm-hmm. don't know it. Mm-hmm. Although I don't know. It's like I, I wonder if some of these people that post online about QAnon know that they are actually trotting out something that works from right history. and, and that,
4: that's my because we don't know enough about who they are
1: right so, oh this guy's behind it or this guy or this guy but
4: we don't know for a fact yeah. And, and we know for a fact who's behind the blood libels you know catholic theologian christian theologians medieval church who made this stuff up yeah and they created shrines to the victims of these people you know, the young children who are allegedly killed by Jews, but well, they're probably murdered by their parents. Or, you know, most children are murdered by people rel- related to them, right? And that's an all, a very uncomfortable thing that most people don't want to deal with. You know, like this, most children are kidnapped, and we have these, you know, laws that uh, kids getting kidnapped, they're, they're often kidnapped by their relatives. Who are yeah, fighting over right. custody um, instead of strangers. Sure.
1: Well, or it's advantageous to blame it on a political enemy, right? Or yes. an ideological enemy.
4: And it often wasn't just, you know, enemies. It was very rare that an important person was accused of witchcraft, but it did happen several times. Uh, usually it's just just um, uh, creating the enemy. You know, uh, I, I read an old science fiction novel yesterday, and it's, it was an interesting passage which talked about how people need to find something to hate. Because it, it gives them some way to create a coherent community of themselves, us against the other.
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, so it's interesting to someone like me who's kind of <laughs> preaching to the choir. Like, of course, mm-hmm. of course, these are the greatest hits of, of you know, <laughs> human hysteria. Yes. But when you are hysterical, it's hard to convince you mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that this is just history repeating itself. Mm-hmm. If you're in the midst of it and you really believe you know, the government's doing these nefarious things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard not to believe those things because the government does do nefarious things. From it time absolutely to time.
4: does. <laughs> um, and including the witch hunts. It says that the government's were responsible for the witch uh-huh. hunts. You know, it, it, and they, the government has the power. The government declares its enemies. And, and where does the truth lie now? And, and we're having all these fights, as I said, about... You said about you know the reality that QAnon tries to put forward, that, that the Republicans try to put forward, that the Democrats try to put forward. We all have our realities, but some are more empirically valid than others. And- well,
1: I mean, yeah. yeah. And I think that, like, as historians, what we do is we look at these different perspectives. Mm-hmm. It's incumbent on us to come up with the most plausible explanation for the perspectives. Yes, based on evidence. Based, based on, on, yes, evidence. exactly again uh the title of your book
4: so game of thrones versus history written in blood edited by myself brian a pavlak published by wiley blackwell
1: well brian thank you so much for sharing your time with us thank you my thanks to professor pavlak you can look for his website at brian org. you see all of his books there oh and i ought to say this because i didn't actually mention it once the entire last season but you can email me at book at baldmove.com. I'd love to hear your feedback and questions.